Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Licks and Mix. Today on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And just me. We don't have Sasha today, but we also have special guest Thibaut. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show, Thibaut. Do you want to give our audience a quick rundown of what you do, why you were invited, and how'd you get into Elixir? Uh, sure, sure. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So I'm an independent consultant for the last 15 years, working mainly with development and data, data pipelines, ETL work. So extract, transform, load, uh, and uh, data warehouses and stuff like that. So data-backed application mainly. And uh, so I've viewed a variety of stack over the years. And uh, my last main stack was Ruby. And uh, now I've migrated gradually to more Elixir work. In that context, I'm actually, one of my main gigs is uh, a French uh, state-backed site, which is transport.data.good.fr, which is what we call an open data transportation uh, access point, which is mandatory by law in the EU. Each state has uh, its own uh, national access point. And uh, this is an open source Elixir app with uh, quite a lot of stuff. You can find uh, data for transportation in all uh, in, a, in a couple of formats, including buses, bikes, trains, electric charging station, etc., etc. So I worked with uh, Elixir on that app for the last two years. And there is a lot going on. Everything is open source, so we will uh, ch- we will give you the the links. And in that context, I um, I had to work on uh, some work involving uh, HTTP queries to replay page, uh, HTTP pagination and HTTP data fetching. So it was uh, basically what led me to write the article that uh, you are referring to. Uh, so I had to I, I use Rec and Mix install to. Um, to uh, create those queries, to paginate over pages and in API to download files, and I found uh, it. I found the need to cache those operations because uh, I don't want to fetch the HTTP uh, API each time I run something and I modify a, a data pipeline. I want to freeze the input so I can work reliably and uh, with productivity uh, down down the pipe. So. I looked into REC because I, I really love that client. It's quite full-featured. It's uh, building on the top of good uh, basis, uh, strong basis like Finch and Mint. And I was quite amazed at what I found, uh, the way REC is extensible with plugins and the steps before and after the query. 
And I find it very clever and extensible. So this is very elixir-ish, uh, by the way. So I shared what I learned writing a simple disk cache plugin in the article. So you have the story. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah, I would definitely like to learn more about Rec. You mentioned it's built on top of Finch and Mint. What what other features uh, does it add? Is it like a more more features to like make it more usable? Yeah. If if you check out the README, it's really uh, what they call uh, it batteries included HTTP client. Not that Mint and Finch are not, but it's a higher level, which means that by default. You will get a lot, actually. So you have what you find in other libraries, like redirections. You have basic authentication. You have body compression. For instance, if Nimble CSV is installed and the, the type is CSV, it will decompress the CSV on the fly. You have uh, extensibility at all steps. So there is quite a lot going on. And uh, you, what I found clever is that uh, all those steps you can unplug and provide your own or, or just uh, decide which one you want using the lower level API. But if you use the higher level API, you get a lot by default. So I find it really nice to use now. That's really awesome. I have never used it. So I'm definitely going to give it a try. Very cool. So I guess one thing, you know, we we were talking about before we started recording was about just mix install in general, right? And Alan, you mentioned you have tried it a couple of times before or maybe not in production. Is yeah, I-, I think I made a video about it uh, to kind of let people know about it because it's, it's quite cool. But I think my biggest thing is I just don't feel like Elixir is much of a scripting language necessarily because of the way it works. I mean, to me, it's always a long running system rather than like, like a one-off script that I would run or something I would just kind of r- turn up like a like a Python thing. Yeah, I was like you, I must say. So coming from a Ruby background, I was my, ba- my base language for scripting is, is Ruby. Uh, because it's, uh, it has a lot of uh, gems and everything. But initially, Elixir was harder to use for me, and even more so for scripting tasks, which are, I, I want to get things done quickly and, and be done with it. So, But when I saw Mix Install, and I discovered it via Livebook, I think, because uh, in Livebook, yeah, you install the library, you can at least install the library you want in your Livebook with Mix Install, or you can rely on, on a Mix project. So I discovered it that way. And uh, I'm uh, one of my work lines of work is maintenance work. So Ansible stuff, upgrades, making sure that the overall cost of a project goes down and not uh, high. And so I really was uh, attracted by the idea that you could just run a quick script, uh, specify, pin down the version that you want without touching your main application. So I have a big application, okay, it has its own dependency, maybe, maybe some are stuck a bit in the past because uh, you have a dependency constraint, so you cannot install exactly what you want. Okay, so I go to a mix install script, and then it's more like, a, how do you say that, a blank slate. So I can start from, I, I can add whatever I want there just for the, the need I need for my experiment. And I don't have maintenance constraints. So I really love that aspect, which allowed me to, to create some very rich scripts and start small and iterate. And maybe at the end, promote the code, extract it and make, put it in the main app. Actually, that's what I did on the, on my main project. Sometimes the, exploration, they start as a small mix install project, files, and then I promote the code to the to the application once it's as graduated. 
So initially, it was quite hard to script with Elixir for me. But now I, I use Mix Install together with a tool called Enter, E-N-T-R, which allows to monitor a list of files and then rerun a command. So what I do is I monitor a couple of files, my, my main Mix Install files and a couple of data outside of it. And I pipe the list of files into Enter and it will relaunch the script. I find it very nice because uh, I just save my script and it reruns. So I can uh, comment easily and experiment like a REPL, but better. I'm not very good at IEX. I don't find it super comfortable. I get the job done in it, but when I have something a bit more complicated, I love that in Mix and Style, you can save and rerun everything. So... That makes sense. <clears throat> I guess one thing that is if you run it in production, you need mix and elixir in production, right? And that's something like if you use like releases or like like distillery that generally people don't go in the, on that route. They don't usually have elixir and Erlang in production, especially if it's like a doc, in a Docker container. It's just like an Alpine lightweight image. Do you generally have that elixir and Erlang installed uh, for that? Or is there like a, a hack that you found to use mix? install? Oh, actually, when I use mix install on the code locally so far, so it's I don't use it on the production system directly, but I can typically uh, backport a production database or get a read-only access to a production bucket or something so that I can safely right. connect, etc. But I don't use it for, for the deployment uh, targets that I have. They vary a lot. So I have a uh, the project uh, Transport Data Gouverneur is a Docker image, which uses uh, mixed compile. I have used release with distillery in the past, and I will definitely use the new release in Elixir itself in the coming months as well. Yeah, Got it. So the article that you wrote were of implementing the cache, uh, the, the module that you defined, the custom cache, that may or may not live in production, but the mixed script that you ran was locally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. So it, gotcha. it wasn't a big problem. It's in the same repo, but I can I can query production data. And but more or less, it's a, it's a kind of play, what I call a playground or scratch pad zone inside the main repo. So we we will uh, we'll share the, the link, but we basically have a slash scripts folder Hmm. in the main app directly so that we nice. the team we are a team of three on that project so we keep the experiments there so we don't feel the pressure to respect production grade of quality unit testing etc but at the same time there is a lot that we learn while writing those scripts that we can keep around and at the moment for instance i'm writing a, a reasonably complex uh, piece of software in that app which is a proxy, HTTP proxy for a certain format, uh, which is theory. It's a transportation real-time format. And initially, I needed to learn that norm, how it works, how to make a little query. So to, I just created a, a pull request and a branch, and I did some mix install stuff. And it allowed me to experiment and to keep the knowledge I learned without actually impacting the, the the system and to share that knowledge with my colleagues as well. And gradually, I'm in the process of expanding it. And now I'm going to, uh, for instance, this week, I'm going to, st uh, to start working on the uh, type of, you know, Postman, the HTTP query interface. So basically, we will have something like that, but in live view and specialized for the format that we target. So we pick templates of, of typical queries. This is a learning tool for people willing to use that format. So you will have explanation, etc. And what I will do at that point is basically take what I've learned with mix install and custom standalone scripts 
move the code and refactor it into the main application. So MixInstall will have uh, helped me prototype all the things over the last months, maybe almost one year, and gradually store my learning without a fear of losing it. So That makes a lot of sense. Cool. I guess one last thing about, and I'm not sure if you run into this, but if you require any of your regular library files in that, in the scripts, one of the scripts, right, that you use, say one, you want to use a repo or you want to use some other uh, dependency, all of the files that you require will probably get compiled, well, not probably, will get compiled in the new, using the new version. Say, for example, you have a different Ecto version in the Mix app and a di- different Ecto version in your Mix install script. It will use the Mix install script, right? Have you run into any discrepancies related to that yet? Or is it like too edgy of a case? Of oh, yeah, n- no trouble at this point. One of the work I've done on the application on Transport Data GovFR is uh, the project was initially launched as a kind of state startup. So they needed to ship things quick and to be uh, to ship a lot of things actually. So when I was onboarded on the team, a part of my work, and I've shared that experience on the Elixir use case article, which is out on the Elixir language site that we will be able to share as well. So a part of my work initially has been to to upgrade the stack actually to to bring it back up to date to leave the startup mode. And to go to something where the maintenance can be sustainable and can make sense and can be easy to achieve. So uh, this has taken a lot of time. But the good news in Elixir and is that it works quite well. I mean, we have very few breakage after upgrading from Elixir 1.8 now to 1.14. Deploy it this morning. Okay, I made a little breakage, but a small one. It's okay. And the maintenance story in Elixir is quite good as long as you pick properly maintained libraries. But the maintainer that I've pinged over issues to keep a library up to date or fix more wiring have mostly all been uh, very responsive. And I see the same when using mix install, actually. I have a mix install script with a certain version of Ecto, etc. When I move the thing uh, to uh, the main app, generally, I don't meet uh, problems at all. So that's pretty cool. Nice. That makes sense. I guess we can. I mean, we haven't really gone into the details of your implementation of the cache itself. Do you want to uh, walk us through that? Like, how did you? What is the strategy in like creating that cache? Like, I see that you have a cache cache path function, which uh, is like a one to one unique cache key uh, function. Yeah, I'd love to learn more about your uh, thought process when you built this. Yeah, sure. The thought process was initially I remembered that Rec had a built-in cache. But it's a, a cache built based on the if modified since request header. And my problem is that the servers I was targeting did not respect the header. So I cannot cache. So uh, what I did at that point was I was first very curious to see how REC uh, implemented its own built-in cache. So this led me to explore the source code a bit and to discover the notion of steps that you can add and so I, I wondered, okay, so how how will I implement the right step? So I realized that I needed to work a bit before the query and a bit after the query as well. Because before the query, you need to verify if you already have the file on cache in a deterministic fashion. And after the query, you need to store the result so that the next call will uh, be stopped at the query. So it was a bit fuzzy for me initially. So I just dove into the rec code 
And uh, so that you had that nice uh, plugin architecture, which is supposed to group steps together. So you have uh, you have t- three types of steps. You have the the request step, so you can plug into the request. Like maybe you want to add something in the headers, like I don't know, uh, basic authentication, for instance, or something uh, specific like that. Maybe you would create a, a OAuth token automatically and refresh it as you will uh, automatically. This middleware IDs, which you can see in Ruby a, a lot as well. And so, yeah, I looked at the code and I can't remember exactly which uh, example I took. Maybe it was uh, the straight example. Initially, it was a bit confusing because uh, you have those attach methods. So I didn't know if it was a name that I needed to respect or not, but actually not. It's just a straight a straight method where you configure the request and it's all, you know, stateless and immutable. So everything is clear, actually. So basically, right, right. you have to have a t- attached method where you reg- you can register options, something which is clever. How do you pass configuration to the modules that you add inside the pipelines of query and responses? And it was really easy. Yeah, it's really, really easy to use. And then how you uh, register request and response steps. Once that was done, I, I just needed a bit of... The code is very, very small once, once you grab that. So I was able to pick the cache path computation from the rec code as well. They do something clever using the host, the request method, and the URL that you encode with a, a hash. So this makes your local file because you need a need to find a way to construct a file that is compatible with the file system. So no special characters, uh, etc. And something that is quite, that will vary as your query varies. So if you have parameters, you need to include that in, into the, into the key. And it was very straightforward because it was already in Rex. So I, I didn't even adapt that. And yeah, there's something uh, really neat that I found compared to other language that I used in the past is the Erlang binary to term or term to binary, which allows you to serialize the whole structs. So this is what quite clever because when I, I use that cache in practice, the calling code will get the same structure, the rarec response, HTTP response, and it will do, it won't know that it has been serialized or not because the whole structure is serialized. So that's pretty cool. And I think it's... Uh, quite unsafe to do in some languages because uh, here the data is really immutable. So when you persist that, you don't have a lot of uh, state in it. Uh, not not at all, actually. You don't have PIDs and stuff like that. So you can safely serialize and unserialize and, and it's really transparent for the caller, which makes it even nicer to, to implement. Did I properly respond to, to your question? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. I mean, there's like so much uh, to unpack there. Like the, I mean, first thing, I, I mean, I, I told you I'm like very new to the rec, the rec library. Huge fan of the options thing, being able to explicitly uh, pass the options and then like p- pass the keys and register them and then pass the options. Very, was it nimble optionsy? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's, uh, that's what it's called, right? Nimble options. Yeah. So it, it's, it's huge. Yeah. Huge fan of that. And yeah, I mean, the Erlang term to binary, I am so glad you use it. I, I, if say you don't want to add like JSON encode or any other like encoder, it's such a lifesaver. Like, especially if you want to, you have any term that you want to write to like a cache or any a, a database or RabbitMQ, whatever, you know, write it to like a message queue and reread it and get that term back. Like term to binary and binary term is like a lifesaver. I'm, I'm so glad you ended up using that here. 
Yeah, it was quite nice because uh, in the analysis I was doing that day, I was basically uh, iterating over pages of JSON. But once I was on the page on the item, the item contains one URL which targets a binary file. So this can be zip files, XML, uh, CSV, whatever, or zipped files. So it was important to keep them uh, pristine and not uh, corrupt them. So it just saved the bytes as they are, which is pretty cool. And uh, as well, I'm not yet using REC in production directly because the the API is still in flux. It's uh, 0.3.1. So uh, using mix install is a way for me to get used to the API. And, uh, and gradually, I think I will use it in production. But this way, I don't have a lot of pressure to try things out. And I, I didn't have any breakage so far. So it's, uh, I like that it, it builds upon uh, shoulders of giants. <laughs> so Mint and Finch below. And overall, right. I feel the, the maintenance uh, story of those libraries as open source projects is very good. So I'm quite confident that we will see them for the years to come uh, alive and well. So that's pretty cool as well. Yeah, it is really cool. Like I eva- I evaluated Finch and Mint, I think early 2021. And the reason why I stuck to HTTP Poison was because of XVCR, which is like a way to record your request and test it. It's yeah. like a huge part of how I do API testing. And it didn't support them at that point. But then I heard that they have support for Finch now, which means they also have support for REC. So that's it. And all the features that REC brings that HTTP Poison doesn't even have any anywhere close to is enough of an incentive for me to reevaluate my HTTP client. And maybe all the listeners should definitely check out REC. It's, it's, it looks very, yeah, very promising. Yeah, actually, what I was... About, what about quite, Tesla? Yeah, sorry. sorry, I was just kind of curious yeah. about Tesla. Have you guys ever worked with that one before? I've not used Tesla I, in... Uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go for it. Yeah, in the app I'm referring to, so Transport Data Gouverneur, we have HTTP poisoned. We have a bit of, we have Finch directly, but we don't use Tesla. HTTP poison was the, the legacy client. It handles a lot of cases. So it's very, very convenient. We, we started using Finch for one specific case, which is that we needed to compute checksums of files that we download in a way that doesn't require a file to be in memory completely. So doing a streaming download, and I will share the the, the code because it's open source uh, for our listeners if they are interested. And Finch made it very easy to implement the streaming calculation on the HTTP body that you download gradually. So that was my first contact with Finch at the moment. And uh, later we we started using it more and when I realized that Heck was actually using Fitch, it was really, uh, I had a good feeling, but I, ne- I never used Tesla, actually. Is it a middleware type of things like it is in Ruby? Is it inspired yep. by the Ruby one? Yeah, Faraday in Ruby. Yep. Oh, Faraday. That's why they also picked a physicist, a Faraday yeah. and Tesla. I think that's why they picked the name. But yeah, I, I haven't tried Tesla yet. I was forced to use it at a job because I think, I think the Elixirs, what, was, what is it called? The open API spec library that generate, uh, you know, the, the, they, they generate a client and they use Tesla. So we had to end up using Tesla to comply to use the client that's generated based on open API specs. But yeah, it's like very middleware. I think you can also make Tesla use Finch as the oh, yeah. actual use. Yeah, you can make it use stuff. So you right. keep like the back, you keep the the interface, but then you just swap out the back end. That's what I understand. Right, right, right. And I think that's like the most, I guess, like promising thing about Tesla. But I think when I was evaluating it, it did not have Finch 
Finch's adapters. I think it had like Erlang's, what is it? It's called Go or something. That's like a, again, a, uh, a very fast HTTP client. Again, I'm not, I don't remember. It was a while ago, but uh, yeah, you reminded me of Tesla just now. It was like not even on my radar. And uh, yeah, it's definitely worth keeping in mind while reevaluating HTTP okay. clients. So it has HTTPC, which I think is the one that's built in the Erlang, which we think you're right. talking about. Hackney, which I think we've all played with a long time ago. Eyebrows. This is HTTP Poison is Hackney too. Yeah, I think it's built on top of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, eyebrows, which I do remember hearing about, but I think that's a really old one, right? If yeah, really old. Yeah. Uh, gun, which I've definitely heard about. That's the one I was talking about, the fast one. The, the Erlang the fast, fast one? one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the one. Oh, Gun's written by the guy who did Cowboy, right? I think, or am I wrong? I guess it makes sense. <laughs> Mint and Finch. Mm. So it has all the... Very cool. The I, actually, in the Ruby world, I don't have very good memories of using Faraday. I think at the time, it was a long time ago, I had trouble because uh, the fact that uh, there was an attempt to make something very generic at the top and use adapters, which is very attractive initially. But I think I, I made some corner cases, which troubled more than the benefits I got from the uh, abstraction. That said, I'm less, uh, I'm less, uh, uh, I'm, I'm more, uh, I, I don't think I would be afraid to try Tesla because in, in Elixir in general, that type of uh, composability is done in a better way. Uh, right. At least that's what I've seen so far. So I'm less uh, in trouble with starting using it. I think one argument, and I haven't, seriously given tesla a try so you know take this with a grain of salt uh, uh, but but yeah it, it's i think with flexibility comes complexity right like i think to make something very adaptory i remember that with faraday as well and ruby like the complexity to and and the you know the the learning curve to get comfortable with it to actually know everything that's going on which i feel like there should be at least one engineer in the entire team who should know things at a low level it's it just introduced more complexity uh if there is i feel like with the with the rec all the cases that i see that it's supporting at least at a high level it's simple enough that we can we can follow it tesla is too complex for me but it's still configurable enough that you know we can do like basic things like retries and caches it might be a happy medium where we can confidently say how to use rec without you know, bringing in a lot of complexity that Tesla might bring in. Again, this is like a, a yeah, this is like just a speculation. I haven't looked at either in detail, but this is the experience that I had in Ruby, which might carry forward here in Elixir too. Yeah, uh, one thing to that I keep in mind when choosing library, and I, I'll share a link about that, is uh, if you, depending on the need, you can target something completely different and have completely different needs. For instance, a part of the application that I'm working on is a HTTP proxy. So uh, in the future, we will maybe want to be able to to stream, you know, the proxies of the, you have the client and user targets our own server. We do a couple of verifications and uh, things like rate limits. This is actually something to protect servers which open their data but are not always able to handle the load or to implement rate limits, or to implement clever API uh, management, or stuff like that. So we, we act as a national uh, protection server. And in that context, we, we, we do the HTTP query that we receive. So the, the end user queries us, and we query the, the private server. 
we look at the answer and we send it back to the client. Okay. And in the process, we use the cash, cash X to put some cash. So we keep the data 10 seconds, 10 seconds in, in memory, for instance, so that we can protect the target server from excess load. And um, so in that context, I, I, uh, I looked a bit at what you can do to stream the answers, etc. But since for, for now, we cache the things in memory. So there's no big point in, uh, in uh, doing some streaming. But later, maybe we'll have some caching, which is done differently, in which case having a HTTP streaming API can be useful. So yeah, it's completely a different need compared to the article I've wrote, which is more laid back analysis on my workstation. Very cool. Alan, do you have any other questions? No, actually, I was just getting sidetracked because I saw that gun was, was actually done by the guy who did Cowboy. I forgot his name. Ah, yeah. Like you said, it makes sense. And then I just remembered about Bandit coming out, and I was like, yeah, Bandit. But Bandit is actually on the server side, not on the client side, right? Which is what Yes, is. yes. It seems to be a plug-compatible right, right. alternative to Cowboy or something. Yeah, yeah I didn't yeah, try it yet, but uh, it looks interesting. It's supposed to be much faster, so I'm kind of curious if, if we're going right. to go that direction eventually. I wonder if they'll write a client named Sword, uh, just to keep up with the Cowboy, Gun, Bandit, Sword pattern, whatever. Bandit, maybe, Sword. Maybe. Is, do Bandits use Swords or... I think maybe in India they use swords. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I did see Indiana Jones and they're using swords in there, right? In India. Oh, man. That's like the first India reference you've made here, Alan. It's me, so nice. <laughs> what? I don't know. This is what I see in the movies, man. I just follow the movies. <laughs> no, but I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm always kind of confused about, like, you know, Finch and Mint. And I feel like we're going to have another client library. I don't know why we got so many HTTP client libraries out there. It seems like, uh, I don't know, like maybe JavaScript has their framework of the week. We got our like HTTP client of the week kind of going on. It's not yeah, that H- many, H- right? But it's quite, it's no. quite a few, right? I mean, I don't think there is a single stack where there aren't plenty of HTTP clients. It's yep. it looks the same everywhere. And I think there is a flavor, personal state, but uh, taste, sorry. But as well, HTTP is quite complicated, actually, when you dive into it. And that's what I like about Rec and Finch and Mint. Mint is a low-level stuff. Finch is slightly higher level and use Mint. And Rec is even higher level and use Finch. So it all depends on what exactly you have to do. But at least they are working together, <laughs> which is nice. Right, and, right, right. Uh, it's, it's tricky because of girls, basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. For for those three, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I forget, I forgot who said this. I think it was like a one of the Rust guys that number of HTTP clients dictate how good and early a new language is doing. If a, if a new language has a lot of HTTP clients coming out, I mean, it's being used a lot and a lot, has a lot of opinions. But as the language gets old, the number of HTTP clients decrease that have been adopted. And, you know, all these new ones that come up by people who think they can maintain it, but they don't end up maintaining it, they, you know, slowly retire. So it's good to use the ones that are built by people who are like more prominent in the community or are part of the core team, right? Like, again, not that, I mean, we're nowhere close to that point where these clients will go away. But yeah, like Finch, Mint, and uh, Rec are at least in that category. You know, all those guys are like known and are connected to Jose somehow. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the the, uh, issues count is low as well because uh, they are more recent. So it's it's maybe in a way easier to achieve. Uh, That's that's something I look when I pick libraries, uh, trying to pick uh, well-maintained libraries where the maintainers are active, no matter, no matter where they work. But because the main c- 
cost for software is maintenance. And I've been bitten by things like uh, server broken at 4 of uh, 4 a.m. Uh, because uh, Twitter uh, upgraded their TLS stack and uh, the client discovered that our HTTP client was not upgradable at all. And so it was a Twitter um, spider and with all the other social modules. But uh, when you have old code relying on the old HTTP clients, you are looking for troubles at some point if you work with the internet. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I tend to choose uh, things that are well upgraded and uh, which I can maintain easily on my side as well. So, Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance. I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. But there's also another issue too that just came to my mind. Do you remember there was a release of OTP that came out suddenly to fix an issue with SSL certificates? Do you remember this? Yes, it was a, a global CA root uh, expiry or something or revocation. It was in September yeah. last year, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that because we had to deal with that. So <laughs> indeed, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. This is the type of things that can happen on the internet. <laughs> yeah, so even even that kind of problem, I mean, luckily that's in OTP or not like some like library that nobody updates, but everybody uses. So, I mean, this kind of stuff is, uh, yeah, that's a huge problem, right? So was it difficult for you guys to fix that problem or is this basically upgrade OTP? Because I think it was just like a patch release. We were able to upgrade quite easily because uh, the technical depth has been had been uh, swallowed. And so at that time, our release process was quite good already. Today, to, because we use Docker, which is not uh, the most popular option, but it's for legacy reason. Our hosting provider is French and uh, they provide the Docker support. So uh, instead of using their built-in Elixir support, we use uh, their Docker support, which allows us to finally control what we want to put inside the Docker image. So we have a workflow with GitHub Actions, which allows to... We use the XPM Docker image as a base, so you can choose the Elixir and the OTP version. And then down the line, we add uh, Node.js, whatever we need, uh, all types of binaries, which uh, we add Java programs because we shell out to Java programs as well in the app. And this allows us to be quite independent and to be able to upgrade at our pace. Because imagine that uh, we would be depending on the OTP version that our hosting provider gives us. We would have been stuck, probably. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that you said that you use Docker, which is not a popular way of doing it. Not um, at all. I think Docker is a really interesting. I, from my experience talking to companies that do Elixir, I have I know only one company that uses Elixir that doesn't use Docker. Now I know. Well, 
Yossi is not Cassandra. I still know only one. So what is the popular way of deploying Elixir in your, in your opinion? I mean, when I first came to Elixir, I had to work. Uh, so my, my very first app was on Heroku with Buildpack. So it's easy. Yeah, okay. So basically you push to your branch and uh, when you deploy, the build packs will run mixed compile and uh, and you, you work like that, okay? As I did more consulting, I, I came over places where people were running mixed phx.server almost manually on the, on, the, on the target, no releases, or something with Capistrano coming from uh, the Ruby world. So basically a script that allows you to pull the right version and rerun the... The, the compilation. I also, so we, yeah, all, all types of uh, possibilities. I mean, you, you can use build packs or uh, use a PAAS. In some PAAS, platform as a service, uh, they provide Docker support. So it makes it easy to right. provide whatever you want. And compared to the option of the, which is often mentioned on the Slack uh, for the Elixir language, which is basically create, you have your own build server and you create releases and then you deploy them to the servers. Well, I've done it a right. couple of times, but I have not seen it much used except from uh, hardcore text channels. Well, so point. Right. So having adopted Elixir in 2015, we have tried, I guess we have gone the Capistrano route, right? Like, uh, okay. in fact, the, the first Elixir Capistrano library, I built that. It's still, I think, open source. It's called ACT, AKD. That, that was okay. We went the build server route, which actually worked okay for some time, like build in a server and then, you know, deploy. But again, you have to make sure the versions of libraries and dependencies are the same yeah. on both the servers, right? Because, I mean, OpenSL is different, boom, it breaks suddenly, right? Yeah. Or any key libraries uh, are different that breaks. And Mixed Phoenix server is just like silly. I think like having to maintain Elixir and OTP on a live server is so much work. So much work. Yeah. Again, I'm surprised that you said it's not popular, but maybe in the places you've worked at in your circle, it might not be. But every place that I've worked at, they may or may not use the Mixed Phoenix server route, but eventually they go to Docker, right? Like eventually okay. they realize, oh, we can't we can maintain this. Like right now I'm advising for the companies that use Elixir, one of them used to use the build server route <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Uh, run the build manually, right? But just seeing how convenient it is to use GitHub Actions, like you're saying, right? Like build an image, build and publish an image and like have a watcher, even without Kubernetes, like have a watcher. I think it's called like a watchtower, like that just watches for a new image version that auto deploys uh, an image. Like, like that setup is so simple. And Heroku also provides like the build pack for containers, right? So mm. like all that stuff, combination of all this stuff, I feel like, yeah, I, I feel like everyone's I feel there's like almost a consensus in my circle, at least, that Docker is the way to go. But yeah, I was, yeah. I was just curious when you said it's not. Actually, I quite like about Docker is that uh, we are not uh, released. There is no vendor lock-in with our hosting provider because of that option, which means it's, it would be quite easy to go to another provider. So we stay with them because we like them and they, they are uh, working fine. On the other hand, more than a couple of times, we've had issues with uh, the fact that Docker is a bit of a black box. So sometimes the container will crash and because we are not the hosting provider ourselves, it can be tricky to determine what has happened inside the box. Something which is less the case when I manage a server directly, it's, it's more work, but often I have more control. I can run more, more stuff on it. 
and generally have more control. So, so it's, it's a type of balance between uh, less work, but less observability and sometimes a bit less performance as well. And the other hand, I have my bare metal server. Okay, I need my, build, my own build server, but I fully control. So depending on the needs of the client and the, the HR, do they have people to manage those servers as well? Because it's nice, but I don't want to leave clients with, you know, uh, SSH stuff, which is not secured and uh, patch, uh, which are not applied and everything. So sometimes uh, less is better. (laughs) Totally. Totally. I think the stuff you're talking about, I mean, I, I feel like good logging, both the container level log and the host level log for the Docker, Docker inspect logs, the Docker logs, like both like periodic Docker inspects. And like, I think Heroku, for example, calls it like log drains. It like drains all the container logs every minute, right? To like a, a logging site. I think those making sure that those are set up properly, you can probably get out of 99.9% of it cases, I'm not saying 100%, right? There's still something that might happen between host and container. But yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. If you have a good DevOps team experience maintaining bare metal and you have complex, I guess, like in, intra-host configuration, for lack yeah. of a better word, right? Then yeah, then it makes sense to make sense to uh, take the bare metal approach. Yeah, but so, so far, I mean, the for transportdatagouv.fr, the Docker route works quite well. The, my main project so we are full Docker at the moment, with, uh, with the exception of uh, the database, which is hosted separately. Our main trouble is that we don't have the host logs because we don't manage it ourselves. We only have the container logs. So sometimes when we have a crash, we, we need to investigate and we don't have the, the full elements. So we are in the process of adding Prometheus uh, metrics to to get more insight on what is happening inside the box, etc. Yeah, because we otherwise we we are a bit blind at this point. So a lot of like these like small providers who like kind of manage the containers, what they do usually is they spin up a VM inside which they spin up a spin up a container, and like the entire Oracle Virtual Box logs are for you to see. In that way, the, the security will be like implicit. You'll only be able to see your VM's logs properly, right? I mean, something like that will allow you to see the host logs, it's not really the host, but host of the container, right? Without necessarily giving the entire host's permission because they have virtual machine in which a container is running. Yeah. I have seen people take that approach. Again, that, that's a lot of overhead for them to maintain, obviously. But I was, I must say, I was happily uh, not surprised because I, I use that on bare metal server. But even just with a basic Docker, we are handling uh, decent traffic, including with proxying, which can be more uh, demanding because in the proxying process, you, you get to keep the the HTTP connection for longer durations. And at this point, we do not have huge problems. We just have one specific architecture where we have two nodes which are not really connected in the Elixir uh, cluster sense. It's not a cluster. They are connected via OBAN, via the database. So our main site takes in all the traffic, the proxying, the catalog of data that we see, the maps, uh, all the tools. And then when we have uh, heavy jobs, we sometimes we shell out to converters or analyzers of data, which are Rust programs. Sometimes we have Java, Java programs, so they run on the GVM. So what we do is that we, we create a shell with uh, the library is called Rambo. Rambo is able to shell out a process and run it and capture the logs and manage the zombie processes properly. 
So the problem that we face from uh, architecture is that sometimes those uh, programs, those Java or uh, Rust programs, the, 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 the file that we process can be quite big and the, the RAM can explode a bit. So we use two nodes so that if o uh, the OBAN worker crashes for some reason, it will get back up on its own without causing problem to the HTTP traffic on the other node. So it's a bit low tech, but it works nicely so far. So we, we don't have really an elaborate Elixir cluster with, uh, we are not able uh, due to Docker to limit a third party program RAM consumption, by the way, which is a, a big problem with Docker in an unprivileged mode. So that's our low tech solution. While staying in the PAS, we use a, one front and one worker, which is very uh, Ruby, by the way. So Sidekick and uh, and the HTTP server in a way, but uh, yeah, works well for us so far. Yeah, I mean, whatever works, right? Like low tech, like I said, like less is, less is more early on. Like you don't need to over-engineer. And that's like, I think one thing people do a lot. I feel in the uh, Elixir community, like uh, people like to try out new things. Like, oh, uh, I want to try out, what is it? Fly, right? Fly, like, oh, it's edge computing. I want to try all this stuff. Like, I mean, how many requests per minute do you expect? Like maybe at most one. You don't need edge computing, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, like it totally like knowing where to stop, knowing what's a good place for your app. Because like I said, any code, not just code, any technology is adding maintenance. Any technology, any code is tech debt, right? So like uh, keeping it simple, keeping your tech stack simple is definitely the way to build a system, especially for, for a small startup. Yeah, and uh, the good news, and uh, I share another link, on we have a live uh, vehicle position map implemented on the site. I share the link with uh, our listeners. And I did things like that before in other languages. The fact is, with Elixir, uh, we didn't even have to think about the scalability much because everything worked so well. So basically what this map does is uh, it pulls, I don't know, 60 or 70 protobuf uh, binary files. So protobuf is JSON, but binary more or less to, to keep things simple. And we pull them every 10 seconds and they give the vehicle positions of buses in some cities. Some, some refresh it every 20, every 30 seconds, etc. So sometimes they move fast and other times they don't move fast. But to implement that, and I share the, the code link, and maybe I, I do a, a XCConf talk about that uh, because it could be funny to implement in, uh, in live. We just have one gen server responsible to pull the 70 HTTP sources. We decode them. And then for each of them, we broadcast using Phoenix channel the data to the JavaScript clients. And each JavaScript client for, for each data set that we have, it's a layer using a DECGL, which is a mapping technology, which is uh, works on top of leaflets. So basically, whenever Phoenix, the gen server, pulls an update into one of the feeds, we just broadcast the whole thing on the other end, and it refreshed the map. And it was surprisingly little work. I mean, in some other stack, you would have to have a, a special uh, something to grab the feeds. And uh, here, you have everything in one process, the fetching, the pub sub to the client via the sockets and the presence, uh, sorry, the presence and the channels and all goes through the, the JavaScript as map. It was surprisingly easy to, to create. And as well, it's really scalable because the polling occurs just one for everyone. 
Yeah. So my point is that it's not to brag about a map or something. It's to say that uh, it's quite a low cost maintenance to have something like this up and running. And this is very encouraging to develop more visualization in real time. And it's not a big deal in Elixir and, and in Phoenix. And that, that was quite an amazing experience. So Yeah, it, it, it looks brilliant. The delay after clicking, uh, I, I'm clicking on the BNLC checkbox and the delay is not much at all. You said 70 HTTP requests. That's that's pretty good for like a single, I guess like effectively a single threaded uh, part of the process. Right? So there's only one Gen 7 that makes all the calls. So yeah, I think I think it's very snappy and it looks great. Yeah. Cool, cool. Awesome. I guess one last thing I'd like to talk about, since we talked about HTTP clients and HTTP calls and API calls, I think we have briefly touched on this before, but how do you approach like testing those API calls? What's like, um, yeah, like um, oh, yeah. Uh, automated testing. Yeah. Big topic. <laughs> okay. So initially the app was using XVCR a lot and it was in the pre-MOX area. So basically the app as it was, wasn't very oriented toward testing. So a part of the work I did was to extract behaviors of the parts that make external calls. So to get inspiration there, first I read the MOX articles and uh, the foundational article. So yeah, what I did is uh, realize first that uh, the app was making HTTP calls and that was what was making the testing difficult. So then I, I looked at the XPM uh, source code, the package manager, which is open source itself. And I saw how they implement uh, various parts. They use mocks and they have testing implementations and production implementations. And it's explained in the mocks projects as well. So basically what I did was extract proper behaviors for all the parts doing external calls and try to find the right layer of code with the right level of abstraction to do that and gradually introduce mock implementation stubs and mocks, which is easy to do as long as you have extracted mock uh, behaviors in your code. Some library in the Elixir world do have are designed this way already. If I remember where HTTP poison, for instance, is already a behavior. So yeah, the, the big testing part was actually removing XVCR calls because they, I find them hard to maintain. It's hard to replay sometimes and to, you can keep sensitive data in there without noticing. It can require things to refresh, it can be complicated. That was the initial state. Uh, then we, we move uh, to mock MOCK, which was actually hacking the modules in the beam at runtime. So you can intercept the calls. The problem is that with that approach, your test cannot be async because the global state is, is changed. And it was just some temporary patching. And gradually, we have moved most of our app testing to mocks. So everything has a behavior. Everything has a clear boundary. And everything can be tested quite easily. And will raise an error if the uh, expectation is not set on the mock. So I, I shared our current configuration. A lot of things are mocked, uh, available as with a testing implementation and a production implementation. And one benefit of that design is that if you need a development-specific implementation of the behavior, let's say, for instance, you want to work locally with something that would normally work with S3 and a bucket, it's easier to implement something that will work in development with a local 
disk-based folder instead. And I find there is a lot to gain to take the effort to extract boundaries and to create behaviors and to work with them because as you do, the test suite becomes better, the boundaries and the explanation between developers are better, but there is a but sometimes on legacy apps, it's a lot of work to get there at times. So yeah, that's it mostly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of mocks mostly these days. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm not, I don't like about mocks is the behavior. I mean, the overall lack of typing in Elixir, right? Like it, it, it is, it is prone to your requests, responses not being completely accurate, right? Like that's where like XVCR, where, you know, you at least have a snapshot of the API at a time and maybe like, like generally how I approach testing it is like have the client itself, the the lowest layer of your HTTP request be tested using XVCR. And that being a behavior, oh, you can like, you know, like any okay. further modules uh, outside will use the mocks to yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. make I see the tests point. simpler, easier to imagine. Actually, there, yeah. uh, you have something to add to my reply, actually. This is uh, for low-level clients, for instance, the proxy feature of the site I'm working on uh, requires to be to work very well. And so we need to test it at a lower level. In that case, if I remember where I use bypass, which is I make a real query, HTTP query, because I don't, I want to be, I, I see your point. You do want to, partly because of lack of typing, partly because you don't go deep enough in the stack, you don't have a real integration test and it can be troublesome. So uh, when I need to go that deep, I, I can go further and use bypass or in some project, I have a custom plug uh, server, which I start myself inside the suit. Okay. So I can ra- have a real HTTP query, sometimes with SSL to test the stack right. from beginning to end. And in some even more complicated setup, I have a full end-to-end testing with real connections. You see, for instance, if I was to implement a S3 library, which is low level, I really want to connect to the real thing and to make sure that I didn't break anything. So yeah, I, I see exactly, exactly what you mean. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. I think at that point, end-to-end definitely works. I think one thing I do like to mention with XVCR, I really feel it's incomplete to use XVCR without like a periodic, uh, like a daily test in a different trigger say GitHub Actions, like run a trigger to run a test every night to make sure the cassettes are up to date. Yeah. Like make the actual API call and refresh the cassettes. So at least, you know, in some fashion, your cassettes are up to date and your CI will use the actual response. The thing is you need to set it up. If you're using an external service, you need to make sure you hide, you know, sensitive data, for example, like you said, like, you know, have, have a way to make your response friendly to from a git git git's perspective but uh but yeah i mean mocks is definitely the best approach for as nothing anything beyond the lowest level http call mocks is the way to go like uh, i mean mocks are some kind of a way to you know like dependency injection or whatever however people like yeah yeah like to mock their uh actual module yep i find that uh, using that has accelerated our our test suite quite a lot but then again if i have a if I have a project with very strong, I don't know, legal requirements to go through real connection, etc., I will definitely have a more end-to-end uh, test. But I want to have something fast so that when we create uh, pull requests, the test suite can be fast and uh, we can keep the fact that we really run the test locally 
you know, I've seen teams where the shoot has gone very uh, long. It takes a lot of time and it can be real trouble because sometimes in some teams, even small teams, I don't mean huge teams, small teams like five to 10 people, and they are not able to run the test locally anymore because of all the requirement to connect everywhere. This means that sometimes the build server, because the only way to run the test, and at some point it's too late. And I think even Martin Fowler has a name for that anti-pattern is in his uh, radar uh, publication, I think. So the, the dependency to the build server where you are stuck and if it goes down, you are, you can't ship anymore. You see? So. Yeah, that makes sense. That is definitely a code smell. (laughs) (laughs) I think one thing, yeah, I mean, being able to pull a repository and run, maybe like run like a setup command, like a make command that sets up your environment uh, and run test within 10 minutes is like the, like the, 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 a prerequisite for all our applications. Like, uh, cause we rely heavily on contractors as a startup. We need, we don't want to, we don't want to waste their time, like set like setting up their environment for more than an hour. Right. Like, mm. especially in today's world with Docker, Docker Compose, all these tools available. Yeah. Like being able to run tests locally, like run everything locally right away without any external dependency, or if there is a dependency, bringing them as part of a Docker Compose uh, development environment. That is like, yeah, the, the total prerequisite that we have for all our projects. So I can totally yeah. relate to that. What was that you mentioned that someone called it in their? book or something can, can can you say that last part again like no it was like, uh, mentioned a person uh, who called us as a coach now. yeah it's Ma- martin fowler if my memory serves well he has uh, somewhere an article uh, stating that the dependency to ci in or a large organization is becoming an anti-pattern i will try to find it back for for our readers and share it with you mm, very cool if he had to Take the time to write this. It's meant that it, it really, must really be a widespread pattern, sadly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Alan, do you have any other thoughts or questions? No. So this the article from Martin Fowler sounds pretty interesting. If I can, I can pass it over, it would be, it'd be nice to read. Sure. I'll try to find it back, <laughs> hopefully. Because I feel like not enough companies actually use CI servers. And, and I mean, most people in, in Luxor land or whatever do do it. But if you go to like PHP or... JavaScript framework people, where the, to me, the entry to barrier level is really low. A lot of companies just kind of come out there. There's no formal training or whatever. They just don't do CIs and testing and everything else. So it's it's interesting. uh, I I mean, from you guys about bypass, uh, et cetera. Go ahead. Yeah. From my perspective, the CI has uh, well developed in a lot of places. I started doing CI in 2000 with tool like Cruise Control. And uh, at that time, you had to fight a lot with your organization to, to bring it into practice. And now you have tools like GitHub Actions, Circle CI and everything, which are uh, openly available. So I'm quite optimistic about uh, the state of all that. I mean... Uh, Every single open source project can can start its own suit and accept uh, PR more more easily. Sometimes we we set up that we would have dreamed of in the past, like uh, okay, run me this on the five flavors of Ubuntu in less than two minutes in parallel, and it works. So a long time ago, you would have paid a heavy bucks for that so it was a full yeah. uh, a full job i mean release manager release engineer it still exists don't get me wrong but you get a lot of release management automatically by using github actions or circle ci 
uh, compared to what you had to to set up in the past. So I'm quite happy about that because it was a pain in the ass not to have that. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine life without CI. I yeah, I, I can't imagine it. Every place that I worked at and every place that I'm that I advise right now, if they didn't have a perfect CI, I would the first thing I'd make them do. Uh, I, I don't care what language they use. It's so easy <laughs> these days. Could have actions like I, 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 like Python. I have zero experience with Python, and I think they use like Fast API. It took me five minutes to set, set up the CI. Like it's that yeah. simple these days with GitHub Actions. If there's something, even something that you don't know, just on the concept, it's easy. So there is no excuse not to use the CI these days. Yeah, exactly. And run the uh, the test cases and all of them fail because they never had a CI server to run that. Right, exactly. Run, them. <laughs> run a linting, uh, run, run Credo or whatever, you know, and that's that's exploding. Yeah, I uh, for the record, I'm, I will share that as well if I remember that, but uh, I'm using, uh, we are building Docker image in GitHub Actions with GitHub releases. And we have a bit of testing in there, just, you know, basic stuff like uh, running command and checking the output. So we do CI for our Docker image as, as well. And it's really, really nice to have uh, the base image uh, hosted on GitHub directly. Everything is so smooth compared to a few years ago. So I'm really happy about that as well. So we can focus on the job. Used Git- yeah, yeah, I have not used GitHub's like registry, like image container registry. Like, do they have like security checks and stuff? Like, I, I know there's like something called Key that does it. Uh, I don't know if I've used Key. I know Docker Hub doesn't have security checks on images and stuff like that. But I'm not sure if GitHub does because that would be a game changer. I am not under hundred percent to understand what you ask actually. But uh, what we do is. Oh. Uh, we we have yeah. You mean uh, is the package uh, protected behind uh, some authentication? No, no, no. My bad. No. Uh, so the, not private registry. So like you know, okay. Docker images vulnerability checks on on images based on versions and stuff, right? Like uh, I, I, I'm not sure if you, it's Q U A Y key.io it's pronounced key but i think red hat builds it but that's like more it checks uh, there's multiple levels of security checks like first is a high level it checks if there's any vulnerabilities reported in the base image in any packages that are installed in the container or in the image rather and it runs a container by the run command just for like a few seconds inspects the logs and based on logs determines if there's any other vulnerabilities so like okay uh, like a security check for your docker containers uh, okay i'm curious if github has that because i've never used it i'm using trivi i don't know how they pronounce it uh, if i remember that that name this is something that you can read it's a, it's a scanner from aqua security to and if my memory serves well you can use it on docker images So this helps me. It's not fully automated in our case right now. We we do uh, a release from time to time to to get uh, patches, but it allows me to assess the number of vulnerabilities reported into uh, the uh, the latest image that we use. And if if we have too much to to go further and to investigate, okay. So it's not perfect, but at least the release process is automated, which is nice to, to have already. And it's combined to the overall maintenance story of Elixir, which is itself quite nice to upgrade and not break. I, I feel that we have a, a yeah. sweet spot here. It's quite nice. Awesome. Yeah, if you could like uh, find the name of that service, that oh, Trivi, it's right here. Trivi, yeah, Trivi. Awesome. Very cool. Thank you for sharing you, that. I, I had no pay, idea about that. If you pay for Docker Hub, you can get vulnerability scans. Docker scan, yeah. right? Actually, we were on Docker Hub earlier. We were on Docker Hub earlier, but I had massive troubles for various reasons. One reason is that our state startup is a member of a larger state startup groups. 
And uh, that in Docker, the way that you can split privileges to people in your team can be complicated. So we solved it by moving to GitHub, actually. So, which means that if you have the right access on the repository, which is able to edit the Docker file, then you have uh, the rights to publish the image on the registry, which is associated to it, which makes it a nice isolation because we have a, as we are a team of three developers. So the developers all do the ops as well. We don't have a huge uh, team. So that level of separation per repository creates one, uh, GitHub hosted container registry package works really nice for us and much better than Docker Hub for sure. Does anybody actually ever pay for Docker? I don't know. Nope. Nobody? Well, nope. well we pay for Key. That's like, but but Key provides us a lot of these things, which and aren't better like R back and stuff uh, that Docker Hub doesn't have. But yeah, Docker Hub, I've never paid for it. Doesn't mean, I mean, you can even host private registries now without any limits, right? In Docker Hub, it didn't used to be that way. There was a limit to that, but now you have like unlimited private images. So there's no need to pay. No, I still see, you have unlimited public, but unlimited private. I remember there was a limit of five. I was uh, upset to see that they took so much time to implement two-factor authentication. So that was a part of the reason as well why, why I moved to something else. Nice. Sorry, I, I have a friend working at, at, at Docker, by the way, so sorry about that, but <laughs> if you listen to that <laughs> podcast. Nice. I think we're looking good, Alan, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Nothing else, we can cool. transition over to picks, right? Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah. Awesome. So, so yeah, we just have called picks, by the way, Thibaut. Like it, it's, I don't know if you've watched the show before. We just like pick, if you have a video game, uh, something related to Elixir, a book that you're reading, uh, that you know, you'd rec- you, anything you want to recommend to our listeners. Uh, that's something that we do in the show towards the end. So Alan and I can go first to give you more time to like have your picks ready. But Alan, do you have any picks for us this week? Yeah, so I don't know if you can see the back of my wall or not i'm recently putting up some smart panels so i'm working out with uh, nano leaf it's pretty i think it's pretty relatively cheap and nice. they got different sizes so i got like a bunch of hexagons and small triangles but they also got like straight squares and all kinds of stuff so yeah that's kind of in my uh it's keep me busy and i think they're, they're pretty relatively cheap and work out quite nicely so check them out nano leaf very cool I have a few picks today. So I have a, a video game pick. It's a game that I picked up again. It's a hidden gem called Kingdom Come Deliverance. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have played it, but it's like an RPG. If, if, an, en- if an actual engineer would, were to like make a game and had have a good amount of budget, like in a think like an engineer game, this is that game. It's surprisingly inexpensive right now because it came out in 2017, but they've had a lot of bug fixes in the last few years. It looks really good on PS5. So highly recommended if, you, if you're looking for an RPG game. And if you're also glutton for punishment, it's, it's a hard game too. So that's my first pick. My second pick is if anyone is looking for a part-time Elixir contracting roles, reach out to me. At my company, we have a ton of work right now. <laughs> we Ooh. have a lot more work than engineers that we have. So if you're interested in pedal stack, we, we all use pedal stack, uh, pedal, Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind, Alpine, LiveView. Alan actually in January kind of pushed me to investigate Tailwind again. 
And when I did that, I ended up liking it. So we moved away from Bulma, which used to be our go-to CSS framework, the Tailwind. Yeah, yeah. So if, again, we're 100% code coverage. Uh, again, our, our engineering team is pretty good, actually. Can't say about, can't say much about other departments, but engineering team is actually good. So if you guys are looking for like a part-time Elixir role and want to get some experience with the pedal stack, reach out to me. We have have a lot of work. So yeah, that's it for my picks. Thibaut, it's all you. Yeah, thanks. I have one musical uh, pick which I'm sharing, which is Goran Grooves. It's a, a new virtual drumming uh, plugin f- to make music. It's actually a, a set of properly r- recorded uh, drums with a kick, snare and everything. And they have uh, clever things like a variable hi-hat to create more of a human feeling, you know? So they sell that together. I, I'm, I do not have uh, stock options. Uh, it's just that I bought it this week and I find really, really nice. I do music. And so they sell those uh, sounds uh, as a plugin. And uh, they sell also MIDI loops on the other side. And I'm actually pretty sure that I will start using Elixir to trigger those uh, drums directly because I played with Elixir and music in the past. The sound is really, really good. And I, I had a lot of fun uh, creating music this week with that. That's really cool. So like you said, you use Elixir to play drums. Like, is there like a DSL for that? Or is it just something you're just in the API right now uh, to start with and, and nothing sophisticated around it? No, it's just I, I made a few uh, talks at Elixir Conf in the past. Like I was just, uh, you know, connecting to MIDI devices uh, using uh, Gen Server and hot code reloading, so I will share the the talks with uh, with your listeners, and I plan to, cool. to do more in the future. So I would be it would be nice to you know you know mix uh, things like accent and machine learning in Elixir together with uh, drumming. Nice, be quite exciting. That sounds awesome. So I hope to make a a conference talk one day with that maybe. <laughs> Very cool. That actually reminds me of one of my conference talks too last year. I wanted to give like an example of metaprogramming to everyone. And I ended up building a DSL live to compose music. But I just yeah. use like also to play. But we could hook that up with this thing and like change instruments. So it's like those things can like marry each other. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share a link to that one too. But that's really cool. I had no idea about this. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. I was gonna say this reminds me of a, a talk I seen quite a few years ago for the library called SCEDEX. If you ever heard that one before, it's a scheduling library written in Elixir. Oh, no. this I believe it's the guy who wrote Bandit actually wrote Skedex. Oh, cool. He used Skedex library to play music. Excellent. I remember that because it's very unique. Yeah. He's got a pretty cool uh, If you have the link, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. Simple scheduling for Elixir. Okay. I'll check that out. Matt Trudel. Okay. That's the guy doing Bandit, by the way. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's the same guy doing Bandit, right? Yeah. Because so, okay. I just looked up Skedex and I was like, that name looks familiar. His username. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me and for all these exchanges. Yeah, thanks for coming, Thibaut. And thanks, Alan, for being here. Yeah, I mean, that's it for today, folks. We'll see you guys next week and hopefully we'll have Sasha to host. Bye all. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.